Hey, Pastor Chris here from the Grove Church team in Fort Collins, Colorado. Today, we're continuing our series entitled 24-6, talking about what it means to take a break the godly way. We live in a fast-paced world with technology that allows us to work and remain on the go, around the clock, 24 hours a day. In this series, we'll explore what it truly means to take a Sabbath, where we are intentional about taking a day of rest. We are confident that the next 30 minutes will help you learn the importance of setting aside a day of rest and how it can help you reconnect with God and find peace. Be sure to join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag 246Grove. That's 24SIXGROVE, all one word. For additional information about this series and more, we encourage you to visit us online at thegrovecommunity.net. And I think most of us do. And one of the ways that this is seen in my life is that before I met Joseph and, and he likes to drive, I was the driver in my relationships. I drove everywhere. And there's many different reasons for that. The first one being is that it drives me crazy when people go under the speed limit and I'm in the car with them. I'm thinking we could be there so much faster. I'm so hungry right now. We could seriously be to the restaurant so much faster if you would drive at least the speed limit. I'm not even asking you to speed. Or sometimes I've been in the car with somebody that they drive way too fast. I was on the way with a friend to a concert in Denver, and they were flying down the interstate and having such road rage, and I was thinking, this is not comfortable. I, I don't like this. I like driving myself because have you ever been where you're, you're in the friend with a car or you're, you're in the car with a friend and you're at a party and you want to leave and your friend wants to stay and you are just stuck there and you're not having a good time and you can't leave because you didn't drive. Ever happened to anybody? Yeah. Or I like to drive because people are really crazy bad drivers and I'm worried for my life. I had a roommate, a new roommate, that I literally had never met before. She showed up from Maine on my front doorstep, and we said, hey, welcome. We're so excited that you're living with us. And she got a brand new car. And she decided to take my friend, my other roommate, Ann and I, for a drive in the car. And this is probably the second day that we've ever met this girl. She was the worst driver that I've ever driven with in my entire life. She's kind of a little bit of a zany person to begin with, and just kind of a little bit spacey, and that's how she drove. So we're going down the road, and she's fiddling with the radio, and she's changing all these channels, and, and she's not really paying attention to where she's going. And I'm like, oh, it, it, uh, road, road. Or she'll just be like, oh, look at that cow. And she started veering off the road. She didn't really stop at stop signs. They were kind of more of a suggestion to slow down. She was one of those types of, and I was like terrified being in the car with her. And, out of, and, and I'm looking in the rear view mirror back to my friend Anne, and we have this look on her face like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I, I am not. I, I have so many things I want to do still. I, I haven't gotten married. I haven't had kids. Like, I haven't traveled Europe with a backpack. Like, I, I have so many things that I want to do, and you're going to kill me. And I'm never, ever, ever getting in the car with you again. And that's why I like driving, because it puts me in control. I don't have to be in a situation where I'm in a car with somebody that might literally kill me. And I'm, I'm honestly, sometimes I exaggerate, but I'm not exaggerating. Like, she was that bad. 
We all like to be in control. I also like to be in control because I'm, I'm really strategic when I'm driving and I've thought about the shortest and fastest way to get about where I'm going. And so when I'm in the car with somebody and they go the long way, drives me crazy and I have to not be that backseat driver and go, oh, you should really take left here and then right there rather than going straight and then left and it'll save you some time. And it, it's kind of a, a, um, a, a joke and a, something between Joseph and I that he also thinks that he always knows the fastest way. <laughs> but I've lived in Fort Collins for four years and he's only lived here for three months and I'm right. I'm just saying that I'm right. But he thinks he's right. So that's kind of a constant tension between the two of us in the car. We like to be in control. We like to be in control of our destiny, of our job, of where we're going, what we're doing, and it is very hard for us not to be. People have been like this since the very beginning of time. Since day one, people have liked to be in control. They have wanted to be in control. In the beginning, God created everything, and it was perfect. And then Genesis 2 says, and you'll have to just listen. That's how the Bible was transmitted for many years. It was oral tradition. It was, it was heard. So just take it in. Genesis 2. Now the Lord God formed a plant. Sorry, he planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. God created a guy. He called him Adam. And he put him in this beautiful garden. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So God takes Adam and he puts him in this place that's full of life. It's full of beauty. He is strategic in putting him in a garden. Because what does a garden have? What do our gardens have during the summer? Food. He puts him in a place where he is being provided for, for all of his needs are being met. And not only that, but he says that he creates this garden that is pleasing to the eye. He creates something that was beautiful, that Adam could enjoy, just for the sake of enjoying it. There is no greater purpose than that. He put him there because it was beautiful. And then it also says that it was good for food. It tasted good. And so here we see, right in the very beginning, that God is good. That God is looking out for the best interest of these people. He creates humanity. He creates Adam. He puts him in this garden where he's being provided for. And he says, you're going to be able to eat all you want. You're not going to be hungry. And I'm going to make it beautiful for you. He wants what's best for his people. He wants what's best for us. He's good. What else does the Bible have to say about this garden? In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So for a moment, let's pause and we're going to talk about these trees. I brought in the only trees that I have in my house, which are Christmas trees, and I'm really excited today. Joseph and I are going and getting our live, fresh Christmas tree. It's going to smell beautiful in our house. I'm super excited. Okay, so these are our two trees for the sake of our illustration. This tree is the tree of life. God said that he created a tree of life that we were allowed to eat from. Why? 
because it was good for us. Because when God is talking about the things that he wants, he says that he wants us to have life. When God is talking about the things that he wants us to have, he's not saying that he wants us to eat from this tree of blah, okay, bitterness, it's kind of not what we wanted, we're a little bit disillusioned. He is saying that he wants us to eat from the tree of life, that this is where we get life, that he is the one that is providing life for us because he planted the tree. And what he's saying is that life comes from me. I'm in control. You're eating the tree that I made in the garden that I made for you where I then put you because I'm giving you life. Not mediocre life. Not sorrow. Not, oh, I wanted this to be better. But he is saying, eat from the tree of life because I'm providing for you and I'm in control. And this is the tree that I want you to eat from, the tree of life. Then we have the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's saying, don't eat from this tree. Why is he saying that? Why is he saying you shouldn't eat from the tree of good and evil? Well, most scholars would say that up until this point, Adam didn't know good and evil. He just knew perfection. He didn't have an understanding of evil or pain or of sorrow. All he knew was beauty and perfection. It's only when we have the opposite of something that we truly understand its opposite. It's only when we finally understand light when we see dark. We only really understand health when we see sickness. In this past week, I, I've been on an antibiotic that I had to take for something, and it made me puke all week. I was just, I literally sat up twice within 20 minutes on Friday and puked both times. Felt really sick all week. And it was in those moments that I come to appreciate and really value my health. But if I, if I had the choice, I would choose to never know what sickness felt like. How many of you would love to never have known what it was like to be nauseous and throw up? Or never to know back pain, or having a sore throat, or a cough, or breaking a bone. We all would love to not experience pain. And so when God is saying, I do not want you to eat from this tree, he's not saying it because he wants us to deprive us of something super awesome. He's saying, don't eat from this tree because I don't want you to know evil. I don't want you to know pain. I don't want you to know sickness. I don't want you to know things not going well. I don't want you to have the knowledge of that. I just want you to take a step back, enjoy the garden, enjoy the beauty that I have created for you, the goodness of the food that I have created for you, and not have to worry about knowing what evil is, what pain is, what sickness, what death is. That's what God wanted for us. God was trying to prevent us from experiencing something that we all wish that we didn't have to experience. When I was a kid, my mom tried to prevent me from a lot of bad stuff, partially because I have very vivid dreams and I have very vivid nightmares. So I went through this phase when I was a kid where I would have these horrendous nightmares every night. And my mom tried all these different things to get the nightmares to go away. 
And one of the things that she did that I'm still really bummed about is she was a new Christian. She was trying to figure it out. And I have these little troll dolls. Has anybody ever had a troll or had a troll when you were a kid? They were popular when I was a kid. But they had this really furry hair, this big gut, and they had a jewel, like a diamond, colored diamond in their belly. And I had a lot of them, and they had fun, crazy colored hair, and their bellies were bedazzled. And when you're six, that is super fun and awesome. And my mom thought, you know what? I wonder if these trolls, they're, you know, they have some evil in them, they have some satanic stuff in them, and they're keeping her up. So she threw away all my trolls. Pretty traumatic. Nightmares did not get better. So one day, my mom is on the patio, and I'm in the living room watching TV. And we grew up in South Florida, where basically the back of everybody's house that's on the patio is just floor-to-ceiling sliding glass windows. And when they're really, really clean, you sometimes can't tell that they're there. And so my mom heard this, this news thing come on about some bombing in Israel. And so she flew from the patio, and she's running at full speed to turn off the TV. And she just, bam, knocks her forehead on the sliding glass door, busts open her forehead. She's dripping blood. We have to go to the hospital all because she was trying to prevent me from experiencing something that she knew would not be good for us. And that's what God is doing by saying, don't eat from this tree. You don't need to. You don't want to. It won't be good for you. Eat from the tree of life, not from the knowledge of good and evil tree. So we have these two trees sitting in the garden. And later on, God creates Eve. He says, it's not good for people to be alone. They really were meant to live in community. So I'm going to create this, this helpmate, this person to come alongside of Adam. He creates Eve. One day, Eve was walking around in the garden, enjoying the fabulous, beautiful view and all the good food. And she is minding her own business when she's approached. Here's what the Bible says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, really, did he say that? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden and the tree of life, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Did anybody notice that the serpent changed what God had said? God said, you could have all of it, great life, but I don't want you to have knowledge of, of, of evil. I, I want you to stay away from that. But Satan took it and he twisted it and he said, did God really say that you couldn't enjoy any of this? That you couldn't enjoy the garden? God must not be good. He must be a really stingy God. He must not want what's best for you. He's withholding from you. And he twists it. And he plants the seed of doubt in Eve's mind. And Eve starts to think, is God good? Is he good? Maybe he is with, he told me that I can't eat from this tree. Maybe he is withholding from me. Maybe he doesn't know what's best. I think I know what's best. Eve becomes like the teenager that never thinks that his parent knows anything. When we were teenagers, we thought that our parents knew nothing. They were just dumb, right? And then as we got older, 
And I love the phrase, it's amazing how much your parents learn when you turn 25. We all of a sudden start to realize all the stuff that our parents knew. And we think, you know what, they really did know what's best. She becomes like this little insolent teenager. Then what happens? The serpent says to the woman, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, when you eat from this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, that your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the trees was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The serpent said that she would be like God, meaning that she would be in control. He said, when you eat from this tree, you can have control over your own destiny, because you really know best. So now you're going to be in control, not God. And at that point, she wouldn't need this tree anymore. She wouldn't need the tree of life. Because when we engage with the tree of life, we're saying we know that everything we have comes from God, that he's in control. So it takes this tree out of the equation, and this is the one that they now experience, the knowledge of good and evil, which none of us really want. She thinks God doesn't know what's best. She wanted to know good and evil, and that's exactly what happened, unfortunately. Because as the story plays out, Adam and Eve do not have this storybook fairy tale ending. They don't live happily ever after because they had the knowledge of good and evil. What happened is, within a generation, there's murder, people are dying, things are not going the way that they wanted, and I bet you that they were there thinking, if only I could go back, if only I could go back, to not knowing about death and sickness and murder. And if only I could go back to saying that God is in control and I'm going to continue to take from the tree of life and say, you know what, I don't know best. Because the reason that God was telling us not to eat of this tree was because he did know best. He knew that this was not a good thing for us. He wanted to prevent us from experiencing death and sickness and pain and betrayal and backstabbing. Just like my mom was trying to prevent me from experiencing something bad. We look at our life and we start to think, I want to be in control. And we start to doubt that God is good and that he knows what he's talking about. This isn't just Adam and Eve's story. This is all of our story. How many times have we been there? How many times have we been going down the road that we know God is telling us to go down, but we start to doubt and think, no, no, really, I know what's best. I'm the one that has a grand scheme picture of the world, not God. I'm the one that knows best. I know the future. I know where this is going to take me, and so I'm going to go where I want, and I'm going to take control of the steering wheel of my own life. We have done that so many times. If you're anything like me. So what does this have to do with stop day? You might be asking. What does this have to do with taking a Sabbath? Well, God knows that we have this tendency to try to take control of our life. To not trust him. So he programs stop day. Every seven days. Because stop day forces us to say God is in control. How does it do this? 
Ezekiel 20, 19 through 20 says, I am the Lord your God. I'm going to read it all the way through, and then we're going to pick this, this verse apart. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. Keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between us. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Don't you think it's interesting that when God starts out talking about the Sabbath, talking about stop day, that he starts out by saying, I am God. And what he's saying to us is, you're not. I'm God. I know what's best. That's why I wanted to give you life. I'm God, and you decided that you thought you knew what's best, and because of that, now we're dealing with sickness and hurt and betrayal and anger and death. I'm God. I know what's best, not you. On stop day, we make sure that we're following God. The verse says, follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Because from the very beginning, we didn't want to keep them. God literally gave Adam one rule. He basically said, you can do anything that you want, just don't eat from this tree. And what did Adam and Eve do? They ate from the tree. We have this tendency to veer from the things that God has told us to do. And stop day causes us to stop and say, which things am I veering from? Which things do I have a tendency to say, I know God said that, but does he really know best? Did God really say that? One of these things for me, that I, I question whether God is really right on, is tithing. To be honest. I have been tithing for probably 15, 17 years, I forget how old I am, for a really long time. But there have been times in the past couple of years with starting the church that I've literally not known how I was going to pay my mortgage. And on that same month, I had a roommate that said, I'm moving out next month. And I rely on that income to pay my mortgage, on that rental income. And I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't know how I'm going to be able to pay my bills. So surely, I know God told me to tithe. I know that this was something that he told me to do, but surely I know best in this situation. And really, I mean, come on. Isn't it wise to pay my mortgage and to not default on some loans and maybe on my credit card, be able to pay my utilities? That's really wise, isn't it? I mean, surely. And I start to do the Eve game. I start to say, surely God can't really know best about this tithing situation. Does he really expect me to tithe? when I'm really short on money. And taking a stop day causes me to go back and say, what laws and what rules has God given me that I'm tending to veer from? And I have to make the, the choice and the decision to say, you know what? I think that God does know best. And so I'm gonna tithe anyway. Even though I think that I know best, that my way is better, I'm going to trust that it's not, because I've seen what happened in the past. I'm going to tithe anyway. I've always seen God be faithful when I tithe. A couple of months ago, some of you remember, I got hit by a dog. 
and got a concussion and got really slow for a couple of weeks. And I was able to get a settlement out of that that has then been able to pay a bunch of bills that we have had unexpectedly with job situations and with surgeries. God always provides because I really don't know best. Taking a stop day allows us to go back and look at God's word and say, which areas am I tending to veer from? I think that I know best, but I know that I don't, so I'm going to do what God told me to do anyway. What else does it do? The very end of this verse, it says, Keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be assigned between us, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. It says, then you will know. What happens when we stop and we don't produce on a given day? It's not about succeeding. It's just about being. We learn that God is God. We learn that the world goes on around us. We learn that our jobs go on without us. It's going to be okay. We're not the ones that are in control. And when we stop and we let God be God, we're allowed to take our hands off of it and say, I'm not God, and I don't know what's best. So what does this mean for us? How can we live out the stop day? How can we say, you know what, God, you are God, and I'm going to choose to live my stop day in a way that shows that I'm not in control, that I've taken my hands off. So here are some things that I think we can do. If you're taking notes, here's one thing. We do a grip check. We do a grip check. My mom gripped the steering wheel very hard when I was learning how to drive. My dad taught my brother how to drive. My dad's more of a, of a calm individual and was a little bit better about teaching my brother how to drive. And then my dad was traveling a lot when I learned how to drive, and so my mom had to do it. My mom is a little bit uppity, and when things fall in the house, she goes, and, and startles everybody, and you think somebody's dying, and she's just, it's something just fell, right? So she's very reactive, she's very expressive, she's a little bit nervous, she has her list that she has to check off, and so when I got in the car with her and I'm learning how to drive with her, I'm nervous off the bat because she's so nervous that I think, clearly, I'm going to be an awful driver. Because she's so nervous, she has no faith in me, I'm going to be a horrible driver. Not a good experience for my mom and I. So as my mom and I are driving around town, my mom's always like this on the door handle, just grasping it. Well, one day, we were pulling out of the parking lot, and I was going right. And as I was going to go to the right, I didn't do the, where you're supposed to look back to the left to make sure nobody's coming again. And as I am turning to go into this lane, my mom just goes, ah! And I look over and I see that there's a car in the lane that I'm trying to pull into. And I've already accelerated. There's nowhere to go but the grass. So I pull off into the grass and I'm driving through the grass and I'm on my way to a tree. <laughs> I'm 15, okay? And my mom's like, Julie, tree! And so I veer out from the way of the tree and I keep going and I'm driving in the grass on the side of the road. So finally my mom screams and she's like, stop! And I stop, and she goes, why didn't you keep driving? Why were you driving in the grass? And I'm like, I panicked, you were screaming, and it was scary, and I didn't know what to do. Not a good driving situation. I look over, and my mom's knuckles are just, they're 
white. And I and she took her arm away, and I, and I really I think it was hard for her. She had to like uncurl her hands, and I was worried that her fingers were going to be broken. She had such a tight grip on that car, and that's a lot of times how we live our life. We have such a tight grip on our future, on our lives, on our finances, and it's really hard to take the grip off because our fingers kind of get stuck in that position. On the staff day, we do a grip check, and we ask ourselves, how tightly am I trying to grip control of my own life? Or am I saying, God, you're in charge. You're in charge. You're in control. You're in charge. I'm taking my hands off the steering wheel. One, we do a grip check. Two, we do a stress check. This one I found on an article, so this isn't from me, but this is good. Listen to this. The number one reason you're under stress is because you're in conflict with God. You're trying to control things that only God can control. Here it again. The number one reason you're under stress is because you're in conflict with God. I read that and I thought, man, the areas that I'm stressed, it really is because I'm trying to take control of my life. I thought about a situation with my dog where I'm trying to be in control. You guys know she had surgery and we're trying to keep her confined and not have her jump around. And every time she uses her leg to itch her face, I freak out. She's not really supposed to be using it. Or every time she accidentally jumps off the couch and I've been really stressed out about it. And as I was going through this message, I thought, I'm not in control of the situation. God is in control of the capillaries that need to be bringing her tendons and her her bone, blood to, to heal. God's in control of that. I can't do anything about her leg getting better. But I've been gripping it really tightly, and I need to let go and say, God, you're in control of my dog's knee, and you need to take care of it. I'm not in control. Stress is an indication of areas where we have not given God control of our lives. On stop day, we do a stress check and we say, what areas do we need to give to God? And the third thing is, we make God our boss. We step back and say, God, you're my boss. Because that's, with a boss, when they tell you to do something, you say yes. They're in charge of where the organization goes, the direction of the company, the vision of the company. When they say something, you say yes. And on stop day, we check our grip, we release our grip, and we say, God, you're in control. I don't want to be anymore. This past week, I was on a walk with my neighbor, and she just had a baby, a ginormous 10-pound, 8-ounce baby. It doesn't even look like a baby, a newborn. It looks like it's three months old. He's huge, and he has these chubby cheeks that kind of smushes his eyes. He's just so cute and fat. Adorable. We were on this walk, and every time that Kara would put him in the stroller, he would start crying. She'd pick him up, stop crying. She'd get tired of carrying him, put him back in the stroller, cry. Take him up, stop crying. Babies have a break. Jesus told us to be like little kids in a lot of ways because they are most comforted, they feel most safe when they are carried and protected by somebody that they know knows better than them, and is good and has their best interest 
That's what we need to be like this week as we approach our stop day. We need to be like a little baby in God's arms saying, the best place that I can be is when you're in control because you know what's best. Because you wanted to protect me from all this junk that's going on in my life and I messed it up. And so I'm going to try to go back to the tree of life to say, my life comes from you, you're in control, it's not me, I don't know what's best. Stop day allows us to say, God is in control. And every week we have to do this over and over again because our tendency is to take it back and start to grip it again and have it be ours. Thanks for listening to this message. Join us next week as we begin our Advent series called An Unexpected Christmas. If you shake any family tree, you never know what kind of people might fall out. And let's face it, we all have an uncle or a cousin we whisper about behind closed doors, and we all have a relative or two we try to avoid at family gatherings. There's no surprise there. But here's something you may not know. Jesus, he had a few shady characters in his family as well. Actually, he had some relatives that would make your most wayward cousin look like a saint. In an unexpected Christmas, Pastor Julie and I will introduce you to a few of these colorful characters and the role they play in the Christmas story. Until then, we hope you have a great week, and thanks for joining us at The Grove.